Welcome to a Friday night edition of Navarra Live on a very big news day. The chair of the BBC has resigned. After, can we call it a damning report? I don't know, the chair of the BBC wants to think it wasn't a big deal and he's just being very honourable. Um, but that's what we'll be discussing. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. As I say, we're going to be talking about the, the BBC controversy. Um, we're talking about why some people are saying we should get poorer when the luxury industries are booming. Um, and I speak to an excellent guest um, about Rishi Sunak meeting with Italy's far-right prime minister. First story. Richard Sharp has resigned as chair of the BBC. It comes after an official report found he broke rules on public appointments by creating a potential perceived conflict of interest. That was because Sharp had failed to declare that he had helped facilitate a loan for Boris Johnson, the then Prime Minister who appointed him. Explaining his decision to resign, Richard Sharp released this statement. Mr Heppenstall's view is that while I did breach the governance code for public appointments, he states very clearly that a breach does not necessarily invalidate an appointment. Indeed, I've always maintained the breach was inadvertent and not material, which the facts he lays out substantiate. The Secretary of State has consulted with the BBC board who support that view. Nevertheless, I have decided that it is right to prioritize the interest of the BBC. I feel that this matter may well be a distraction from the corporation's good work were I to remain in post until the end of my term. I have therefore, this morning, resigned as a BBC chair to the Secretary of State and to the board. What a very honourable posh man. I don't think I've really done anything wrong, but uh, because I want to protect the institution of the BBC, I have decided that I will do the incredibly honourable thing and I will resign, even though I've basically been vindicated. Um, that's that's what I got from that. Um, the resignation is double-edged for the Labour Party. They had called for Sharp to go, so can claim this as a scalp, someone they've taken out. But it also means that Sunak will be in charge of finding Sharp's replacement. And whoever gets the job as BBC chair will have a full four-year term. And that means that if Labour win an election next year, they will be deprived of an opportunity to pick a new chair until 2027. Probably for that reason, they want the appointment process for the new chair to be more independent than it has been in the past. This was Shadow Secretary of Culture, Lucy Powell, speaking earlier today. We do have to have some democratic uh, oversight to, to these positions, uh, but we also have to ensure that the process that, are, that is arrived at is uh, not only independent, but seen as being uh, independent. There were some other criticisms about the process in this report. Uh, for example, that, that government ministers and advisers throughout the appointment of Richard Sharp made it very clear to the media and others who their preferred candidate uh, was for this job, thereby clearing the field of anybody else who might have, have applied for this position. And, and the report today recommends that sort of behaviour stops. It makes some other recommendations as well about uh, enhancing and strengthening this process. But I think the government should be going further on that, really, so that it can provide that reassurance to licence fee payers, to the vast majority of the British public, that this process is independent. We get the best person uh, for the job. Yes, of course, the, the government of the day probably has to, to sign off that at the end of the process, but they shouldn't be... Um, going out to their, their very cosy network of, of mates uh, to, to get one of them to apply, clearing the field of everybody else and then rubber stamping them 
uh, getting the job at the end. You know, we've got to see an, an end to that process. And that's why I set up a, an independent yeah. review panel to advise but, but, Labour so that how we can not do that ourselves. So panels and reviews are normally just a way an opposition party can avoid committing to actually changing anything when in power. So they say, now, oh, I'll do this independent panel. When we get into power, oh, maybe we will keep the right to choose this guy. Anyway, in Powell's defence, she still, even if it was vague, offered a much clearer answer than that offered by Rishi Sunak. Should his replacement be a non-political appointment? And are you sick and tired of cleaning up Boris Johnson's mess? You know, what I'm doing is focus on delivering for the British people. That's what I'm here talking about today in Scotland, how we can work constructively with the Scottish government to deliver for the people of Scotland. Just this week, almost three quarters of a million Scottish people received direct financial support with a help with the cost of living, the most vulnerable in our society. When I was last here, we announced the creation of two new free ports. They're going to create jobs and attract investment here in Scotland. That's what I'm focused on doing, delivering for the people of Scotland and the rest of the UK. But should the next person not be a non-political appointment? As I said, right now I'm focused on talking to the people here in Scotland about what we're doing to deliver for them most of all the cost of living. That's not That's the answer the to my question, Prime Minister. Well, should the next person be a non-political appointment? You know, we're jumping ahead of it. There's an established appointments process for all these things and it will be right that we turn to that when the time is right. But right now I'm here talking to the people in Scotland about what we're doing to deliver for them. So obviously Rishi Sunak, I only want to talk about Scotland. Very, very decent, reasonable. Cost of living crisis in Scotland, very, very important. He did add, though, um, there is a process and we will follow it, meaning um, I am going to choose the next chair of the BBC, essentially. Aaron, what do you make of this story? Any surprises today that the chair resigned? What's the significance of it? Yeah, it's interesting that his resignation comes so soon after Raab, um, which is partly coincidental, obviously, because... Rob was responding to a report in regard to bullying in the workplace about a week ago now. And it was a very Rob, Robian tactic. You kind of get ahead of it slightly by resigning and saying you've actually done nothing wrong, which obviously I think it's the outside person looking in with perhaps not really any deeper understanding of the situation. They would think, well, if you have nothing to worry about, you've done nothing wrong, you probably shouldn't resign. So yes, this whole posh thing of falling on my sword to save the institution, well, perhaps you shouldn't have taken the job in the first place after having financial dealings with the Prime Minister. Uh, we'll talk in a moment about um, the, the nature of how uh, these people are appointed and uh, the political nature of that appointment process. I would quickly say though, Michael, I think any appointment process is political. Um, you will clearly have somebody at the top of the BBC you will clearly have various people in senior positions in a public service broadcaster who will have certain political prejudices and biases. And even if they don't, even if they're immensely objective, they will have certain backgrounds. They might have been a Labour student or a Conservative activist at university. They might not agree, even agree with the views they previously held, but to somebody else in the public, that might disqualify them, them as being you know, uh, politically impartial um, and somebody who's appropriate for such a position. So... I think we're on very, very sensitive terrain here with regards to that. We'll talk about that more. But I would say this idea that you can have apolitical appointments for senior positions in public service broadcast, easier said than done. There are potentially degrees of independence. So there's sort of, you know, someone who has a political opinion who then tries to act as neutrally as possible. And then there's, you know, you help to arrange a loan for the, the prime minister. We should say the financial dealings between the prime minister and Richard Sharp, you know, it wasn't that one of them lended money to the other. I mean, that Richard Sharp introduced the person who ultimately, or, or who we think ultimately lent the money to Boris Johnson, because I feel think this is still rather, um, you know, we, we don't know the full extent of everything that's gone on, but he introduced him to the head of the civil service. All rather confusing, but in any case, this guy was involved in Boris Johnson getting a loan. Um, Aaron, they're talking about how 
this appointment should be made? Can it ever be neutral? Um, someone who has voiced their opinion today, it's Gary Lineker. The BBC chairman should not be selected by the government of the day. Not now, not ever. And Dan Hodges, somewhat less significant than Gary Lineker in all of this probably, just like to point out again that there is no such thing as an independent chairman of the BBC for as long as the chairman of the BBC is appointed by the government. Um, Dan Hodges, of course, a uh, columnist from the Mail on Sunday. Aaron, I suppose you're potentially disputing this claim from Dan Hodges, are you? He's saying um, there is no such thing as an independent chairman of the BBC for as long as the chairman of the BBC is appointed by the government. You think there is just no such thing as an independent chairman of the BBC? No, I think both those statements are true. Um, I think you could have even an, a sort of independent appointments process, which is independent of the government. And by the way, those are very rarely independent of the government. Most things that we're told which are independent aren't actually independent. So, for instance, with the pay review bodies in this country, we have eight or nine pay review bodies in the public sector. They cover millions of workers. And we're told these are independent pay review bodies. They're selected by either the prime minister or the relevant senior ministers. So um, that, that, that's, that, that, that's in regard to the composition of these pay review bodies. So it's very difficult to say a pay review body is independent when the people on that pay review body are literally chosen by senior ministers and the Prime Minister, i.e. the government of the day, i.e. the executive. Very hard to understand, really, how even you can, you know, even with a straight face, refer, that, refer to that as independent. So clearly that kind of thing is not independent. I would go slightly, which is what, um, you know, sort of Dan Hodges is intimating there. Those kinds of processes can't lead to, lead to political independence. But I would also add, Michael, I think, look, in the 21st century with social media, everybody's got a digital archive, everybody's got a digital footprint. You look at their sort of activism as students, you look through their, you comb their tweets, their likes. They were in a photo once with this person. You know, uh, there was a great quote from Robert Pierre. I can't remember the exact words. He, he said, show me six lines of a man and I'll be able to find enough in it to hang him which is to say that you, know, you, you go through somebody's life and their biography and their works and deeds and words enough, you will find something to say you are disqualified from this job, you aren't sufficiently independent. So I, I think it's a very dangerous road to go down saying we have to have people who are completely political and partial because generally speaking, that th those people either don't exist or if they do exist, somebody somewhere can find a, a sort of hole in their CV and a gap in the logic. But then secondly, in terms of how the government does it, I think that's, that's a major problem. I mean, look, we can talk about how appointments are done this is just how democratic systems work, right? We, we invest significant amounts of power in legislator, legislators who are in the legislature, in the Houses of Parliament, in the Commons in particular. We invest a, a great deal of power in legislators and the executive, i.e. the government, because we vote for these people ultimately. That's how the system is meant to work. Uh, and I think a lot of this kind of stuff is noise. I would actually, I don't really mind quasi-political appointments of various positions. Uh, obviously, they shouldn't be like this was with Sharp. But I think, you know, if we democratize our political system, if we have PR, if we make our executive far more accountable to the legislature, um, if we have an elected second chamber, if we distribute power in a more polyarchical sense rather than concentrating it in a small group of people in the cabinet, in Westminster, in Downing Street, I think that's the big fix really for, for a lot of political dysfunction in this country. So the idea that oh, we'll just keep things the same, but we're going to pretend that we appoint really independent people everywhere, I, I sort of don't buy it. And basically, you just end up in a, a situation of like a, a permanent air war between the left and the right. The left bashes the right's candidate. The right bashes the left's candidate. I think it's quite wishful thinking, frankly. I think where I definitely do agree with you is that the, the, the thing I find most ridiculous and frustrating when it comes to, well, one of, I mean, there are many things, but one of them in British politics especially, is how there are so many roles where it's just literally the government picks the person but then puts independent in front of their name. So, you know, you always see John Mann, the government's independent anti-Semitism advisor. He, he, was, he was just 
picked by them. You know, there, there, there is no way by which he is an independent force separate from the government because they just picked them. It's the, the same with the, the, the prime minister's independent ethics advisor. It's just someone he appointed to, to, to mark his own, own homework. But they put this very misleading independent word in front of it. I suppose in terms of, you know, what, what practical way could one create a BBC, which is a bit more independent from the government. I think from my perspective, key things would be give it a much longer term charter. So I think the idea that the the BBC charter, sort of how much money they get, the, the mechanism by which they get that money, that being controlled by the government of the day means that there is just this sort of Damoclean sword that any government can hang over the BBC. I think we see that very clearly at the moment. We saw that with um, you know Boris Johnson's government sort of threatening the license fee, basically saying, you, you better stay in line. Um, otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. And I think probably that's why we saw people like Lewis Goodall essentially getting kicked out and sent to to LBC because they said, you've got some troublemakers in the BBC. And if they stay there, um, your funding is 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 at risk. They they use the language of impartiality, but basically they're saying you're being too 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 critical of us. So I think if you gave them a longer charter where they, they knew that our funding is secured for 20 years or 30 years or whatever, then they can be like, well, we genuinely can be independent. I suppose the other option is you know, I, I know you said it won't be apolitical, but if you, I suppose if you have a cross-party mechanism to employ the person, that could make them a little bit less partisan. Although we do know that, you know, the, the, the majority of the legislature, as we saw with Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, you, you can have the whole parliament essentially unite against anything which is outside the realms of what they what they like. So it might not be representative. I, could you also have some sort of trust system, I suppose? I mean, if, if you had each government gets to appoint one person on a trust, then it would it would have a bit more sort of long-term independence and its own identity than just the the government of the day pick the top guy each time i mean uh, your, your thoughts on those potential suggestions aaron i think that's a really smart way of doing it michael by, by committee right but of course when you do things by committee it can get very messy michael uh, we know that on the left we do everything by committee so i i think that's probably a sensible way of doing public appointments through the legislature of course the point is again though michael just to repeat what i said earlier on that is accountable and, and, and transparent precisely because you have democratic elected legislators choosing uh, the person who should head up the BBC. And that's a really key point. The idea that it would be a group of people who are chosen by, you know, a bit like the laws. There's an independent panel and they appoint a panel which appoints a panel and they choose the person who's the chairman of the BBC. I just think, yeah, this is crap. That's, that's not how democracy is supposed to work. Then quickly, Michael, you know, the, uh, the converse to this was not converse, but it's a similar sort of rhetorical tactic is you know, independent, um, like you said, uh, my independent ethics advisor. Another one I love of these, Michael, is controversial. You know, if you want to immediately discredit somebody, I'm right, let's say I'm writing about Ed Davey, the least controversial person in politics, right? Leader of the Liberal Democrats. Basically, nobody's heard of the guy. Caroline Lucas, whose party has one MP in parliament, is more widely known. If I write an article, I put controversial Liberal Democrat MP, Ed Davey. What's he, what's he controversial about? That's not good. Oh, maybe he's not a nice chap. Yeah, it's one of those words that's just sort of, it's like confetti in British politics. And, and more often than not, it, it doesn't mean what it's meant to mean. If you use it enough, then people say, well, why, if you say, well, why are they calling you controversial? I mean, again, it's sort of like the Labour example. If this many people are saying you're, he's, he's a Russian spy, maybe he is a Russian spy. I mean, obviously they use that more with anti-Semitism than Russian spies. But if everyone's saying it, surely there must be something there. And then you, might, you can sort of create something out of nothing. Next story. Rishi Sunak has met with the far-right Prime Minister of Italy and the two leaders got on like a house on fire. I wanted to pay tribute to you for your very careful handling of the Italian economy, yeah. which has brought stability in uncertain times. 
And I think the values between our two countries are very aligned, which is why we can work so well together on shared challenges, whether it's responding to Putin's illegal invasion in Ukraine, where again, I pay tribute to your leadership, uh, but also tackling illegal migration, which is something that is common to both of us. Tackling uh, traffickers and illegal migration is something that your government is doing very well. I'm following uh, your work. Yes, I do absolutely agree with your work. And I think there are many things that we can do together. For the problem we have to face is the external dimension. It regards Union, uh, European Union and posing this problem, but I think UK can help on this work a lot. Of course, Giorgia Maloney's Brothers of Italy party comes out of the neo-fascist tradition in Italy. Um, so her praise of Sunak's approach to migration should raise alarm bells. But Fraser Nelson in The Telegraph has told us not to worry. So he said, Giorgia Maloney, Italy's far right PM, doesn't seem so dangerous after all. He says Rishi Sunak has an ally in the Italian leader who has proven surprisingly moderate in government. So nothing to be worried about there. Is Fraser Nelson right, though? Should we relax about the brothers of Italy and Georgia Maloney? I'm joined now by David Broder, Jacobin Europe editor and author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. How extreme is Georgia Maloney? Georgia Maloney is undoubtedly a far-right politician. Uh, I also read the article you mentioned by uh, Fraser Nelson yesterday in The Telegraph, who said kind of, oh, well, Maybe uh, five years ago, Giorgio Melani used to talk about ethnic substitution, so used to talk about great replacement theory, uh, the conspiracy supposedly headed by usurers and speculators and Marxists to replace the white Italian population with immigrants. Uh, but Fraser Nelson said, well, maybe she doesn't really talk about that much anymore, so what's to worry? Um, so I think his piece is kind of denying really that the far right could exist and just says, well, anyone uh, calling people fascists, that's just the alarmist left. Um, but I think that what she represents really is a radicalization of the right uh, in which parties like the UK Tories um, are increasingly happy to have warm relations with parties from a fascist and collaborationist uh, background, ones that promote uh, things like great replacement theory, uh, an obsession with civilizational decline, uh, and the fight against it. Uh, only last week, we had a minister of Maloney's government, uh, indeed her brother-in-law, uh, again warned that Italy needs to boost birth rates uh, in order to avoid surrendering to ethnic substitution. So I think you know the extremism of the party, it's not a return to the 1930s. Uh, as you say, I have a book called Mussolini's Grandchildren. It's not called Mussolini's Clones. Uh, but we are seeing a, a party which is obsessed with the idea of the threats to the homogenous Italian nation, the destruction of the family, uh, and the supposed conspiracy of finance and Marxists uh, to bring that about. So uh, I think in that sense, we, we can, of course, say that it is a, a radicalization uh, on the right. We're still talking in the realms of language, though, aren't we, and discourse. So you're sort of talking about how, how the discourse is more extreme than what we're used to. It's a sort of fascistic um, way of speaking they have. Uh, has it translated into policy? I mean, uh, are there sort of policies you can point to of the current Italian government? You say, well, that's a bit fascist. One thing I, which very much isn't just rhetoric is the fact that the children of immigrants who are born in Italy uh, aren't entitled to Italian citizenship. And it's actually very hard to, for them to get citizenship. And that's because of the right, Italian rights successful resistance against the, the principle. You know, it was discussed uh, five years ago. Uh, so they've successfully resisted that. 
Uh, we've also seen the current Italian government, you know, so far, you know, of course, this party has been in office before with uh, the Lega under Salvini and uh, together with uh, Berlusconi, of course. So just to take the last few months, uh, we've seen it uh, strip back the special protection, uh, allowing so-called allowing uh, asylum seekers to remain in Italy. Um, and at the same time, it's uh, probably one of the most radical things it's done isn't just in the field of you know, migration and so on. Uh, but it's actually got rid of uh, unemployment benefits. So uh, since 2019, Italy has had a citizen's income, so-called, which is like a bit like JSA in Britain, uh, and the government has uh, announced it's going to abolish that, it's legislated that, uh, it's already started to happen, and from 1st of January, that will no longer exist. Uh, apart, apart from its properly sort of fascistic roots, uh, this is a party that basically upholds um, so bootstraps and indeed even Reaganite economics and has a kind of culture war against the so-called lazy, unemployed young people and so on. Uh, so uh, the getting rid of unemployment benefits, you know, in the, the clip you played, uh, um, Sunak uh, was very kind of chummy with Maloney, praising her also for uh, bringing Italy to a sort of difficult uh, economic phase, difficult period of stability, uh, instability, sorry, uh, but of course, it's not providing stability for the millions of people who are going to uh, no longer be able to receive benefits when they're unemployed. I didn't realise that. So zero unemployment benefits, none at all. So what's what's going to happen to people? I mean, because I think Italy also has quite high unemployment rates. Like, what, are people just going to be completely destitute? Is there some other support mechanism that's going to exist? Uh, well, there's the uh, the family, of course, is one support mechanism. Uh, the other is they'll probably introduce some form of workfare. Uh, I mentioned Lolo Brigida. Uh, I, in fact, I didn't say him by name, but he's the agriculture minister who's Maloney's brother-in-law. And uh, it's interesting, actually, the way he puts it really does link together the issue of unemployment and the so-called uh, lazy people who don't want to get a job and immigration. He gave a speech two weeks ago uh, where he said that um, uh, unemployed people who are receiving benefits now should be doing uh, farm work because they might think that, well, we can just import slaves, as he said, uh, to do the jobs instead, uh, but instead Italians should be doing it. So the party doesn't just say, well, um, foreigners are coming and taking our jobs. It's also saying it's the fault of lazy Italians who want to be paid too much, who are therefore creating a demand uh, for immigration. Uh, so I think um, what they're talking about now is to introduce um, some sort of workfare uh, and also to make these uh, to make the, the employment benefits that do exist uh, only available to people with kind of specific health conditions and so on. In Britain at the moment, we obviously have this sort of enormous controversy about small boats crossing the channel. I mean, that's kind of old hat in Italy, right? So there's been many more people arriving in Italy for a much longer period of time by boat um, via the Mediterranean. I mean, you know, the political problem this poses is that it's very visible and governments can really sort of mobilize an emotive response to this. I mean, is there anything from the recent history of sort of Italy on this issue that you think people in Britain could could learn? What what what, what can we take from the experience of Italy in, in, in terms of how progressives, let's say, should respond to the politics of small boats? It should certainly be said that in Italy, uh, so-called centre-left governments have also pursued a repressive policy towards migration. It's not only the far right doing it. Of course, it's partly because of their political pressure, even when they're in opposition. Uh, so, for example, if we think of the, um, you know, of course, Britain has its uh, plan to uh, send uh, asylum seekers 
and other migrants to Rwanda. Um, but Italy has this relationship with uh, Libya and with uh, sort of North African uh, regimes who are meant to police migration to suppress it on their behalf. Uh, in Italy, the the kind of debate around immigration has moved very far towards this idea that it's actually kind of humanitarian uh, to stop the boats even trying to set off. Uh, the Meloni government uh, has started this kind of, uh, or resumed this sort of war on so-called people smugglers, uh, and they're trying to frame it as an issue of uh, people smugglers are exploiting migrants and putting them uh, in danger. Uh, there was an interesting report in January which showed that of the people who have been sort of arrested in Italy as people smugglers, uh, most of them were just kind of ordinary uh, migrants who were sort of put in charge of a, a dinghy at the last minute, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, so I think for the uh, for the left or progressives, as you say, it's very important to resist this kind of uh, false uh, humanitarianism. Uh, this this uh, this and and argue, of course, for for safe routes uh, for migrants to uh, reach uh, reach Italy in this case, or or in Britain uh, for you over there. Um, of course, the Italian government hasn't actually uh, made its own the uh, Rwanda. Uh, policy and uh, in the Fraser Nelson article you mentioned, uh, he kind of says, "Well, uh, who's to say which is which is more moderate and so on?" Uh, but of course, uh, firstly, there is repression of migrants uh, coming to Italy, also thanks to relations with various kind of North African states and and Turkey as well, of course. Uh, and only today, uh, Meloni said that the uh, British policy on Rwanda uh, shouldn't even be called deporting people because how can you deport someone who's an illegal immigrant? So the very fact that they're illegal means that they can't be uh, deported. Uh, so uh, I think in the Italian case, uh, of course, the um, the, the um, there's this sort of specific tie with this language of ethnic substitution, great replacement theory type ideas, which seem uh, less uh, prominent in uh, British politics. Uh, but of course, they they could also take root there. I'm sure. Next story: You need to accept getting poorer. That was the message this week from Hugh Pill, the chief economist of the Bank of England. He told a podcast from the Columbia Law School in the United States this. Somehow in the UK, someone needs to accept that they're worse off and stop trying to maintain their real spending power by bidding up prices, whether higher wages or passing the energy cost through onto customers, etc. And what we're facing now is that reluctance to accept that, yes, we're all worse off, and we all have to take our share to try and pass that cost on to one of our compatriots and say, we'll be all right, but they will have to take our share too. That pass the parcel game that's going on here, that game is one that's just generating inflation and that part of inflation can persist. So that's his message. If we all try and maintain our incomes, um, then we'll all lose out. Now, to be fair to Hugh Pill, he he did point out that businesses as well as workers should be accepting less money. So he says that they shouldn't pass on energy costs to consumers. So presumably he's saying they should take a hit to their profits, which is reasonable. I'm not sure how much the Bank of England is, is doing to ensure that can happen. I suppose it's more of an issue for central government. In any case, the comments have, again, very understandably, infuriated many people in Britain. And that's especially because we're seeing headlines like this. Britons need to accept their poorer says Bank of England economist. And that comes in the same week as headlines like this. This is the FT. Will the extraordinary boom in luxury goods ever end? So one day we've got Britain's need to accept their poorer. Then we've got the FT. Will the extraordinary boom in luxury goods ever end? So that sounds like there are certainly a few people accepting 
they still are very much not poor. The injustice of it all wasn't lost on the audience of Question Time this week. This intervention was especially strong. We were told after the last financial crash, like 10 years ago, okay, you have to put up with like no pay rises for now. So it's been 10 years on. So my generation, so I, I would have graduated about 2010, we've never had a pay rise in line with inflation. Like people are putting off having families, buying yeah. homes, all of that stuff. And when you look, I think the other part of it is looking at the consequences of these political decisions. So yeah. if, for example, you put the burden of tax on those who are the most vulnerable, they are going to have to choose between doing very extreme things like, do I buy my medication? Do I buy food? If you put the tax burden on the very rich, it's like, okay, I have a slightly smaller bank balance at the end of the year, but you're still rich. You're still a billionaire. And the other thing I'd like to say, when, when I say rich, I don't mean people who are on like 100,000, 200,000. We're talking about the people who have billions. Like you have people in this country who have billions. You can never spend it in a lifetime. You could never spend it in 10 lifetimes. Like, why is it that you're then putting the burden on people who have no money? Like, it doesn't make sense. If it's an annual income of 100,000 pounds, that does make you rich. And I think the tax should be higher on you. But I mean, the broader point is, is correct. And I think especially pertinent when we're looking at luxury goods companies booming, he's saying that if we tax billionaires, they're not going to notice, right? I think the reason luxury goods are booming is because there are so many people with so much money to spend. They need something to do with their money. So they end up buying um, luxury goods, especially which sometimes they think might uh, increase in value. That's extraordinary, isn't it, Michael? And you've talked about uh, Louis Vuitton's parent company there, the most uh, valuable company in Europe. There are other ones too. You look at, for instance, I think Dior, they're in the top 10 companies in Europe by market capitalization. Hermes is worth $225 billion. Dior's worth $165 billion. Their value is just rocketing up. You had, I think, the managing director of uh, Harrods say last month, business has returned to pre-pandemic levels. They say statistically, people just get, you know, the rich get richer in a recession. That's just how it is. Oh. It's not necessarily how it is. It's, it's how it is right now. So you basically have open admission by the 1% here, managing director of Harrods, saying that actually this recession is working out just fine for them. And to add to what you, what you said there a moment ago, Michael, the rich don't just spend their surplus money on luxury goods. Even worse, they spend the money on assets. So they've got too much money to spend. They literally can't spend it quickly enough, as that gentleman said there. Not just billionaires, millionaires too. What do they do? They buy assets to generate more wealth, to generate more incomes. Now, of course, that can be forms of you know, national debt, sovereign debt, US gilts, uh, British gilts, US treasuries. It can be precious metals, but it can also be things like bricks and mortar, buildings. Because being a landlord is still just about, uh, even though interest rates are high, especially if you're buying a place cash, it's actually quite lucrative. It is not good for the majority of people, for a minority of the ultra-rich to get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. There was this sort of platitude really for the last 40 years. Well, we're going to permit income inequality to rise if it means that the very poorest also get richer, right? The rising tide lifts all boats. Sounds good, but in, in reality, that's not what happens. You create a layer of the ultra-rich. They literally have too much, too much money to spend. They invest that in assets. Those assets have to find returns. They find returns by impoverishing other people, right? By driving up the cost of rent because you're buying a house and you become a landlord or they drive up the cost of university accommodation because people are buying stocks in these giant building companies that specialize in building something called purpose-built student accommodation, uh, PBSAs. So it's very, very, very bad with regards to uh, that young man. I, I just do not understand how, yes, of course, he was applauded. Some people are just 
older men, it should be said. I'm not saying all old men are right wing, but it should be said. It's an observation. They were just sat there, not really clapping. I, I do not understand how people cannot say or grasp the fact that billionaires and millionaires need to be paying more money in tax. It is good for everyone. Even if you're a pro-competition, pro-liberal market capitalist, it is good for what you want. This is not a stable situation politically, and it's leading to economic inertia. So well done, that man. And as you've said at the top here, the fact that luxury brands are seeing their value just go up and up, clearly, we're not all getting poorer. No, I mean, you, you kind of reminded me, actually, I suppose the one, the one silver lining to the boom in luxury goods is it's better for the rich people to be buying luxury goods than to be buying our houses. Um, because it is, at, least, at least I'm not really competing with them for Dior bags, but I would be competing with them for somewhere to live in London. Obviously, getting them to pay taxes would be much more useful than getting them to waste their money on Dior bags. Uh, let's look in a bit more detail at the Financial Times article on luxury brands that I showed you the headline of earlier. And this is how the article starts. Sharon Wong had decided she had earned a little indulgence as she browsed at Louis Vuitton in La Samaritaine, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, department store, one of Paris's marquee luxury shopping destinations. It's expensive, but I've been thinking about it for a few months, the 30-something marketing manager from London said, as she examined models of the Petit Sac Plan, a small rectangular bag which costs about 1,500 euros. I save a bit, I think about them as investments. The top names will always have value, especially the styles with history. Around the corner, they write, a clutch of suited Italians and a German family milled in the lobby of the five-star Cheval Blanc Hotel, or hotel, where rooms start at about 2,200 euros a night and staff said occupancy was running at 70% and above. The Hotel La Saint-Mariton and Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton, sorry, have one thing in common. They are all part of LVMH. The family-controlled luxury conglomerate was built into a powerhouse by Bernard Arnault through serial acquisitions since the 1990s, giving his family a fortune that is now worth about $212 billion. Of course, while some of that success of the luxury goods market is down to the rise of the middle class in countries like China, so not necessarily a story about inequality here, it is also a story about inequality here because it is driven by the rise of the super rich in Europe and America as well. Charts from the Financial Times show year-on-year -year growth in revenue from different world regions. In the fourth chart, you can see the growth in Asia, excluding Japan. So this is mainly going to be China, really. You can see there's been sustained growth in demand above 10% a year. So you see that would really boom. That would really sort of give a boost to those industries. In Europe, though, where we're supposedly facing a cost-of-living crisis, the growth in demand for luxuries is also huge. Let's zoom in on Europe now. You can see that throughout the 2010s, when the rest of us were suffering from austerity, there was sustained growth of between 5 and 10% a year in demand for luxury goods. That fell by 29% in 2020 during the lockdown, or the lockdowns across Europe. But the rebound was dramatic. So in 2021, revenue increased by 30%, so completely making up for the pandemic fall. Then in 2022, it rose by another 35%. So all of those losses were made up in a year. And now revenue is a third higher than it was for the pandemic for luxury goods. Aaron, the person whose analysis this really reminded me of um, was Gary Stevenson, who we've had on the show. You've done a brilliant interview with him on, on Downstream, who sort of talk, talked a lot about how one of the big problems we have, one cause of, of inflation, um, is that during the pandemic, the wealthy 
sat on their cash, got very, very rich. They were sort of still collecting rent from the rest of us, um, but not spending their money. Now they have this huge pile of cash to spend. And essentially, that seems to be what we're seeing here, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's hiding in plain sight, Michael. The Financial Times had to rename their weekly supplement from how to spend it to HTSI because they realized how distasteful it was to have a, 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 I love reading The Weekend FT. It's great journalism. Some of it, some of the, some of the columnists are awful. Jalan Ganesh, Robert Shrimsley. But most of it's very good. The How to Spend It supplement had to literally be renamed because they understand the politics around that now are awful. The optics, as uh, some people in marketing and branding like to say. You know, this idea that particularly center-right politicians and labor as well, let's be frank, so look, it's easy to talk about billionaires and millionaires. It's really easy to make them sort of these cartoonish villain characters. Jeff, you know, Jeff Bezos literally can't talk because his face is so puffed up from taking human growth hormone and, 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 and testosterone and Botox. He's literally going into space with, you know, uh, Captain Kirk. Of course, he's cartoonish. Elon Musk is, of, of course, a very cartoonish character. So no, when you say that there are evil cartoonish billionaires and millionaires, um, they are, you know, the avatars of our society. They do exist. Uh, and the idea that, oh, no, that's just you know, the, the willful, whimsical imaginations of the left. Watch a TV program. Why do you think, if, if there's no wealthy people, why do you think Succession is such a, a successful TV series? Or White Lotus? You, you think those people don't exist? You don't, it's just a, they've been made up by some, some screenwriter in, in Hollywood? No. That is accurately depicting a runaway class of billionaires and millionaires, particularly in Anglo-America, who have too much money. They have so much money, they literally don't know how to spend it. Kendall Roy is literally a critique of the society that we live in. You know, uh, Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox, and Brian Cox is quite explicit about this. You know, these are awful people. These are literally the worst human beings in our society. Those people exist. Rupert Murdoch has billions of pounds. His children will inherit a huge fortune. What did Murdoch do? What's his legacy? His legacy is fundamentally holding back action on climate change by several decades and building in populist right-wing hegemony in countries like the UK, Australia, and the United States for 30 years, which frankly means that all of these countries are in long-term political and economic decline. And as a result, he's a billionaire. So, yes, there are very wealthy people, despite what centre-right, centre-left, purportedly centre-left, centre-right, let's be frank, they mostly just agree on the rich getting richer. That's what both parties should be called, the rich getting richer parties. Despite what they say, oh, there's actually not that much money around. There's a hell of a lot of money around. It's on Amazon. It's on HBO. It's in the, the market capitalization figures of firms like Louis Vuitton and Dior and um, and it's in the literal words of the manager, managing director of Harrods when he says that in a recession, the rich get richer. He's not saying that for fun. He's not a socialist. He's not pals with Mick Lynch. He's saying it because it's true. Next story. Ever since Nick Clegg's betrayal on tuition fees, the Lib Dems have gained a reputation for dishonesty. And they still deserve it. For example, take a look at Leila Moran on Question Time this week, where she was talking a good talk on housing. In Oxford, we're seeing a lot of this. And what's happening is that young people just move out. They move away. They want to stay and start a family and then have their parents there so that they can be part of it and you know, help look after the kids. They are putting off having children in the first place. Then they move far away. It's breaking our society uh, that we're not getting this right. That was Leila Moran articulately explaining the problem of Britain's housing crisis. I totally agree with her. 
That was excellently put. The problem across the country, the Lib Dems are making this crisis worse. Now, that's because Lib Dems are the ultimate NIMBYs. They win election campaigns by campaigning against anything being built. Now, the most dramatic example of this was the Cheshireman Amersham by-election in 2021. This is how John Elledge explained that win for the Lib Dems in the New Statesman. The Lib Dems hadn't won by persuading the residents of affluent southeast Buckinghamshire of, say, the importance of liberal values. Green's victory had been built largely on opposing both HS2, which passes through the constituency, and the government's planning bill, a developer's free for all. The voters of Chesham and Amersham had not suddenly opened their eyes to the true horrors of the Conservative government they had hitherto supported. The Lib Dems had won through weaponized nimbyism. The Green there, not reference the Green Party, but the surname of the candidate. Another Lib Dem MP, Sarah Olney, has campaigned to block new housing. Olney is the MP for the wealthy West London borough of Richmond. And she joined constituents who launched a campaign to stop the building of two housing blocks in the much poorer East London borough of Stratford. Now, the reason? It would block their view. The campaign was launched because the new housing block, which was due to be built in Stratford, would apparently ruin a view enjoyed by walkers in Richmond Park of St Paul's Cathedral. And for anyone who has any knowledge of London, you'll know Stratford is a very long way away from Richmond. It's 15 miles away. And it's on the other side of London to St Paul's Cathedral. So this opposition to tower blocks being built in an area with a shortage of housing and poorer residents in West London um, was that they might be able to see it in the background of St Paul's Cathedral. So it would undermine the panorama they enjoy from the, the beautiful Richmond Park. Leila Moran herself um, has campaigned against new housing developments in her constituency. In 2015, she tweeted this, I'm campaigning to protect Oxford's green belt from piecemeal development. Here's why. The link you can see there goes to a video which includes this moment. Conservative and Labour alike are proposing 1,500 houses to be built on the green belt around Oxford. This is part of a plan to build an extra 100,000 houses in the county during the next 15 years. To put it into context, that's a 40% increase on the number of houses at all in the county. The Labour and Conservative Council leaders across Oxfordshire are planning to have a Greenbelt review. I am calling for them to make sure that this is done in a public forum. Groups across our constituency are saying that they don't feel they have a voice. We need to make sure the review is fully open to the public and transparent, so people feel truly involved in their own communities. And the thing that's annoying there is obviously Leila Moran is not saying don't build any houses because that would, you know, that would be too explicit. She's saying we need to have complete transparency, complete democratic sort of input. And then obviously all the people in that video are saying don't build on the green belt, right? Now, again, I'm, I'm not saying we should just get rid of all planning regulation and build over everything. But I do think we have a big problem where you have often very wealthy residents, often older residents in an area who say we don't want any new development here. Now, she was like, I think it'd be great if there were 40% more houses in Oxfordshire. I lived in Oxford for three or four years. Beautiful. It's, it's so lovely being surrounded by fields. If you feel a little bit stressed, you can go for a run and you suddenly within about 10 minutes find yourself in the countryside. Great. But it, you don't need it in every direction, you know? Like it, there are very few people that get to live in such a wonderful place where there's sort of high employment, good educational opportunities, and then nice countryside around. So how about we give over a third of those fields to housing so other people can live there instead of saying we need each and every single one of these fields to remain as they are. You know, the, the, the big view we saw there when she was saying we need to protect the green belt was just a brown field. Like there was, there would have been 12 next to it. I mean, you know, as I say, 
I always walk on Hackney Marshes in London. Big, I'm so glad it's there. It's so important that everywhere has access to high quality green space, but not everywhere needs to be green space, especially when it's just the same fields that surround so many towns in Britain. We need to build more homes. More recently, Leila Moran has taken aim at proposals for a new reservoir in Oxfordshire. Um, here, the need for the proposed Abingdon Mega Reservoir is far from proven, and the environmental impacts of such a project don't seem to have been accounted for. This project must be halted immediately. No more reservoirs. Again, we talk so much on this show about sort of how we need to prepare ourselves for climate change, adaptation, as well as mitigation. Often that means um, we need to be very careful when it comes to our access to water. Um, yes, we need water companies to be fixing leaks, cleaning up rivers, um, but we're also going to need some more reservoirs, right? And it's, it does seem to me that we have many MPs around the country and especially the Lib Thames because they're so passionate about local campaigning over national policymaking who just say no to everything. Aaron, am I being unfair? You're not. The Liberal Democrats are worse than the Conservative Party. They are worse. I don't know, people watch this go, typical contrarian leftist. How could you say that? That's absurd. Let's get into the nuts and bolts. Why are they worse than the Conservative Party? First of all, I could talk about how the fact they, they operate basically with the default of misinformation when it comes to local and national elections. A default of misinformation. In Jacob Rees-Mogg's constituency, in the 2017 general election, the Tories got 53%, the Lib Dems got, I think, 8%. Labour came second with 30-something percent. Ahead of the 2019 election, the Lib Dems are offering leaflets out to residents saying, we're six points behind the Tories. They're on 38%, we're on 32%. Where did they get that number from? They commissioned a poll from Servation with a question which broadly followed as, as this. If there were two political parties in a, a neck and neck race in this constituency, and it was the Liberal Democrats and the Tories, and nobody else could win, who would you vote for? And they put that on a leaflet. Now, if that was Donald Trump, or I would even say, actually, in this country, UKIP, or the Brexit Party, the entire media would say, this is fake news, it's lies, this is the leading edge of fascism. Because it's the Liberal Democrats, nobody cares. So that's the first thing, the misinformation. But secondly, and it gets to the heart of this issue here with regards to housing and nimbyism, they don't have any politics. They don't have any politics. So they go and see conservative voters uh, in a, in a Labour-Lib Dem marginal. They say, we've got to keep Labour out. Then they go to Labour voters in a conservative-Lib Dem marginal. They say, we've got to keep the conservatives out. So they claim to be progressive to Labour voters, and they claim to be centre-right towards Conservative voters. It's like Jekyll and Hyde being in the same political party, and all they can agree on is 5p charges on plastic bags and proportional representation. That is not a serious way to operate a political party. So they literally don't make any sense because that's in the DNA of the organisation. Furthermore, at 2011, Nick Clegg, there is a video of him saying, well, we don't need to build new nuclear capacity because that won't come online until 2022. Michael, electricity costs went up in 2022 by 60% plus because we don't have enough domestic capacity in this country for things like renewables, i.e. wind, solar. But let's be real also when it comes to baseload, nuclear. So these people don't think beyond a parliamentary cycle. They don't think in terms of solving national problems. They are always constantly reacting to an objection being made by a local resident. You know, I saw a I saw a, a leaflet by a conservative uh, councillor, a Lib Dem, Lib Dem councillor, and he said, these are my accomplishments. And he listed them off on the leaflet. It was all blocking stuff. It was blocking infrastructure. It was blocking housing. It was blocking expansion to, you know, uh, flats or, you know, a, a telephone mast. Now, look, I understand for councillors, that's a lot of casework. But your, the whole reason for you to be in politics can't be to block stuff. 
You also need to do stuff. You need to build stuff, make stuff, solve problems. But that is not how they view politics, Michael. And I know this is going to be very hard for some people watching. And they, like I say, I might have explained all of that and they still might not believe me. But in terms of long-term planning, in terms of uh, fairness and truth-telling while campaigning on the doorstep, and in terms of actually offering people something propositionally, they're the worst party in this country. The Tories want to offer you lower taxes, although they're not really doing that right now. Labour wants to give you better public services, although the same applies there too, right? But at least we broadly know what these guys stand for. The Lib Dems, it's neither. It's inertia. It's managed to climb. We have managed to climb in this country, but the big two will say that's by accident. We don't want that to happen. Whereas with the Liberal Democrats, that gets to the heart of what they are as a political project. To finish, there's been some big news um, today in terms of the struggle for proper public sector wages in the NHS. The story is one of division. That's because today Unite voted to reject the government's NHS pay offer, while the GMB voted to accept it. Um, as you may know, the Royal College of Nursing had already voted to reject the offer against the advice of their General Secretary, Pat Cullen. Unison has already voted to accept it. So, you know, couldn't be more divided in a way. Um, the health unions will next week come together to vote on the offer. The, sim the system sorry, functions like an electoral college with each union's vote proportionate to the number of their members. Um, the math suggests um, they are expected to narrowly accept the deal. That means that the government will, will pay um, the, the raise. Well, obviously, it's a real terms pay cut, but they'll, they'll pay um, the money as agreed. But... Um, that won't stop the RCN and Unite going ahead with further strikes, or it's very unlikely to at least. And this was Unite national leader One Kassab speaking earlier. Here's what we will be doing. We are now preparing to escalate. We look after our members and we want to look after the NHS. So we'll be preparing now to escalate the action. We'll discuss with our representatives, discuss with our members. We're taking action on the 1st of May and the 2nd of May, but we will now look to take the necessary action, the necessary escalation to bring the government back to the negotiating table. In contrast to NHS workers, the education profession is, as it stands, um, showing itself to be incredibly united. The leaders of the National Education Union and NASWOT, which represent rank-and-file teachers, and the leaders of the ASCOL and NAT unions, which represent head teachers, they today, um, all four of them, gave a joint press conference announcing their intention to take coordinated strike action in opposition to the government's current pay offer. Again, a real terms pay cut. And this was ASCOL's Jeff Barton. I never thought I would be sitting talking about the fact that 24,000 ASCOL members, those eligible, have said to us, we reject that pay deal and we want a formal ballot for strike action, not for action short of strike action. We've rejected that because action short of strike action won't send out the seriousness and the urgency of the message that the government in its parallel universe appears not to be hearing at the moment. We went into those talks in good faith. They were bizarre and surreal in many times, but what we did, and you won't have seen it, but we saw it, we did not play the union barons we gave an absolute evidence-based case that unless you, the Secretary of State, and you, the Schools Minister, and you from Number 10, and you from the Treasury, start to understand the serious crisis that the people we represent in leadership unions and the people the teacher unions represent, that we are unable to recruit those people, we're unable to retain those people, and the workload issues need to be tackled. That was the case we made, and we provided absolute evidence for it, and yet here we are, finding ourselves where we are. 
I run a leadership organisation. If I was leading a school and I had a crisis between me and some of our staff, I would pick the phone up and I would say, what do we need to do behind the scenes to sort this out? And the nation's parents are watching on and saying, why is the government not trying to sort this out? Of course, I can see in the comments um, people saying 130,000 civil servants also on strike today. Um, we will, of course, give you updates um, when it comes to how those negotiations are going. As far as I understand, there weren't developments in terms of the negotiations today. It was just a, a, well, not just strike action, but it was strike action, which we knew was going to be taking place. Two very different stories here. Now, I, I don't particularly read this as there being more unity in the education profession than there is in the, the healthcare profession. I think it's probably more about the, the phase at which these, these actions have found themselves in. Obviously, the NHS dispute been going on for slightly longer. The nurses does seem quite complicated now, doesn't it? You've got half of the unions who've accepted the payoff, or half of the unions who haven't. As I say, in the electoral college, which they'll all come together in, um, it, it seems that a majority will vote to accept. But that doesn't mean that the nurses, and I think it's especially ambulance drivers or ambulance crews who are part of Unite, that doesn't mean they will automatically fall in line and then ex accept it. They might still be going out on strike. I mean, well, what do you make of this? I think that's right. I think, sadly, in this instance, you know, the division is, is going to really undermine um, powerful industrial action and, and probably will undermine their ability to get the pay rises they want. I think that's inarguable. But the long-term issue here, Michael, is that we have a shortfall of around 46,000 nurses, midwives in this country, 46,000. And we're not going to make up for that shortfall in terms of recruitment until we significantly improve paying conditions. So that might seem like a win for the government, but if they want a permanent crisis in the NHS and they want industrial action in the NHS every single year, and by the way, when that happens, people get more militant, uh, workplaces become more densely unionized, people become more politicized, the people that vote no this time will probably vote yes next time. You know, th this is not a long-term winning strategy for the government when it comes to recruiting staff in the NHS, keeping hold of them, and, and, and dealing with this as a political issue. You know, I, I think fundamentally their long-term strategy is underinvestment in the NHS and broadly destroying it. I think that's the long-term strategy over 10, 20 years. I think they want people to drop out of the NHS who can afford to drop out and who then go into private provision. And gradually they want it to become more or less like a, a US-style public health care provision for the very poorest, which still has many, many, many gaps. So yes, in the short term, it's obviously, it's, it's sad. It's not good news, but I don't think really it changes much in terms of the long-term fundamentals. Then secondly, with regards to the, 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 the leader there of the, of effectively the, the union for head teachers in secondary schools and colleges. I mean, wow, Michael, we're at this extraordinary stage now where the Conservative Party is taking on the bastions, the historic sites of conservatism in British civil society. Lawyers, Doctors, head teachers, these are people who were meant to be, or they were, the, the sort of identical archetypal Tory voter for decades. And, and, and now they're not just, you know, expressing dissent towards the Conservative Party, they're going on strike. And, and I think that's going to really undermine the, 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 the Tory base in the long term. It's clearly changing as well, of course, becoming far less Southern far more northern, it's not northern, it's important to say Labour still has a majority of places like the northeast, the northwest, it's becoming more northern, much less southern, and it's trying to appeal to a, a different kind of demographic, C2, C2DEs, i.e. sort of you know, wealthier parts of the Labour market who own their own homes, and obviously tend to be a little bit older. But 
this is a major, major shift in, in what the sort of paradigmatic Tory voter looks like. And I think long term, Michael, I, I really think this now. The trajectory we're on right now, I think, suggests to me that really, and, and Labour might not win the next election, it may be a hung parliament. I think they'll be the largest party. But fundamentally, the party of the sort of sensible establishment, centre-right managerial party in the UK, I think is, is going to be the Labour Party. The Tories may shift back to where they've come from. I don't think they will. I think they'll move further right on cultural issues while ignoring the kinds of people in civil society, like head teachers, who've really been the base of their, their vote. Uh, interesting times. Uh, not particularly good for the Conservatives in the long term, but in the short term, of course, awful for organised labour and working people. You know, I mean, I totally agree with that analysis of like the nurses strike, especially because, I mean, you, you know, in the short run, you've got the government say, yes, we successfully played divide and rule with the NHS workforce. That will demoralize them. It's like, what, what, what? <laughs> you know, I thought, I thought mm. we had a staffing crisis in the NHS and a victory is now that you've managed to divide and demoralize a workforce. So e even the unions, which sort of accepted the pay deal, very close. So I think in um, unison, it's sort of 56, 54, you know, Sorry, 50, my, my maths has gone now. It's been a long day. 56, 44, is it? Um, you know, very close um, vote. So you've got loads of people who are going to be going back to work saying, this sucks, you know? You, mm. you, I, I think the, the, the unions who are still going on strikes for the RCN, they are going to struggle given that sort of the unity of NHS workforce is, is undermined. Yeah, the Tories can, can cheer that. But if you've managed to sort of defeat the nurses union and demoralize them back into the NHS, what kind of success is that? I don't know what kind of success is that? Um, let's go to a couple of comments just before we wrap up. Um, with a fiver on the Super Chat, Spitting Fire, I could do a weekly segment from Aaron highlighting Lib Dem lies. Also on Super Chat, Pancaking says, Aaron ought to tidy his bookcase. Um, an activity for you this weekend. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Michael, my pleasure. And I really mean it when I say the Liberal Democrats are the worst of the lot. <laughs> Uh, I, I believe that after tonight's performance. Um, thanks everyone for watching this evening. On Sunday, do come back to this channel. Ash will be interviewing writer and poet Mohammed El Kurd. Really, really exciting. And of course, that's about Palestine and how the media cover the struggle of Palestinians. And um, we've often done segments of Mohammed El Kurd speaking to the mainstream media and you know, really, really powerful. So it's great to have him on Navara. Um, that's here at 6 p.m. on Sunday. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.